talk to me a little bit about, I mean, we hear the applications of uh, uh, blockchain in financial services and banking a lot, but leaving that aside, let's talk a bit more about other industries, for example, healthcare and legal and all of these industries. Do we sure. really need blockchain at this point for especially as far as these industries are concerned? Absolutely. I think, I think, first of all, let's just set some, some um, you know, the scene, I suppose, in many ways. So there's certain elements of blockchain and distributed ledger technologies that are going to be key to its advancement and utilisation by the mainstream business world and individuals we have out there. So some of the, the terminologies that people hear are things like smart contracts. So in really, in real simplicity, you know, in simplistic terms, a smart contract is something that's just an automated contract. Um, I know, I know, there are a lot of technologies, and there's a lot of things that happen with with them. But basically, it's data we we input, it's terms and and, and agreements that we input into a techn technologically driven contract that will happen autonomously without an individual human being involved in the execution of that contract. And of course, it will produce different outcomes. We have um, digital currencies that can run on the technology. We can have efficiency gains and cost reductions because of those automations and the elimination of dysfunction and inefficiency in the use of our technologies that we have. Now, if you look broadly at some of the use cases across the world, and I'm going to talk, uh, you know, about education, I'm going to talk about social impact, and I'm going to talk about, um, you know, how it can impact all businesses. But I'm going to talk about one that's really, really crucial, and that's identity. And I'm not just talking about a personal identity, I'm also talking about a business's identity. So we talk about a sovereign identity, something that is belongs to me or belongs to the entity who owns it. And we use the term, you know, self-sovereign identity. So currently as it stands at the moment, as, as we all know, our information goes out into the ethernet and we don't own that data in any way, shape or form. We don't, you know, some of it's personalised and some of it's, it's anonymised. I understand that. But let's bring back um, the potentials of this technology to empower something as simple as a person's identity. Now, there is a real divide. There's something like 2.5 billion people in the world don't have a formal identity. Now, without that formal identity, they cannot access financial services. So talking about financial services and digital currencies, I've got to tell you, is an absolutely mute conversation if I can't access them because I don't have an identity. Without access to financial services and the ability to exchange value, however that ability and whatever that value exchange is, I can't access health services, government services, education. So one of the most profound um, benefits and potentials of this technology is to empower an individual, every individual in the world, to have an identity that is immutable. It can't be. It, it can't be changed. It is the person. I can use that information um, to allow access to other services, and I can own that information. I can create an identity for myself right now without a government. Um, passport or an identification, um, you know, obviously by using biometrics and a whole range of information, I can record my identity. I can, I can capture and store that identity, which is an asset, by the way, in a digital means, whether you want to 
call it an account, a car, a, a wallet, whatever you want to call it, but it's mine. And right. from that moment, I can access financial services. I can access education, health services, and so forth. So if we want to talk about some of the most profound effects of this technology, let's just start with some of the basics, like giving people uh, an identity. Because without that, all the conversation in the world about financial services are, is complete, completely mute. And there are 12, you know, there's, there's billions of people that can, that, that can access it. So that's one. But I'm also going to take that one point, and it's not just a social impact point. I'm going to take that one point and I'm going to talk about the massive cost reduction to business globally by an individual having an identity that doesn't have to be continually verified. And I use this example. I was working for a company and, and, and giving them some strategy in regard to how they could build a business case for the deployment of um, the use of blockchain because often companies say, we know we need blockchain but we don't know why. And I'll give them a tangible example. And a tangible example is this. If you think, and every one of us that, that listens to this conversation in between you and I, if you imagine in one week how many times I receive a telephone call that asks me as an individual to verify my name, my date of birth, my address, who I am and where I live and all of those sorts of details. It's, it's innumerable. I think every single conversation that I have now when I have to, to exchange services, I'm having to verify my identity. Right. Now, if you imagine each time on one of those calls, even if it takes three minutes of my time, I'm now in a business and I'm going to use an example such as um, a big mining company such as Rio Tinto or BHP or one of those that might have 100,000 uh, employees around the world or any other form of, of service business, somebody that's got you know, 100,000 employees. Start multiplying that three minutes of time once a week by 100,000 people and then you start to equate the cost of that time by both the individual who is actually being, is employed at the time, is actually using their work paid time to verify those credentials. And there's also on the other end of the phone, the other individual who's actually receiving the information and verifying those credentials. You start to multiply that time of one call, one time by 100,000. And I can tell you I've done the exercise and that can equate to something like 13 to $20 million for one company purely on the fact that they have to continually keep verifying the details of identity um, re regarding their workforce. And my question and my um, you know, very blunt stop to that is what if we did not have to do that? That's, that's probably a million dollar question. I mean, considering the price and the time and the cost of all of those verifications and Correct. authentication, if you compare that to the, how this automation can actually kind of help us save all of those costs for that specific company or even for the Correct. government uh, organizations, I think that single application yes. of identity uh, management for, for, for the population itself is a huge mm -hmm. application. And I think all that's of right. these... Uh, uh, the, the fact that the verifications and authentications can be made secure originates from the fact that database, the blockchain database is actually very, very secure. And it's very, uh, it, it, it uh, makes sure that the confidentiality of the user 
retains and it cannot be the identity can not be forged so on and so forth correct That's a but i'm but i'm going to bring this back also in this conversation to some some common sense and some some normality and reduce the hype and the rhetoric that we hear in this conversation so people would argue that you know if we ha if we have a digital form of identity that is self-sovereign identity whether it's a business or whether it's an individual or whether it's an organization that has their own identity um, that you know those records can't be um, erased that's one of the challenges what we've had of course with GDPR but can I argue at the current state of play that we have at the moment no I don't have control over my identity my data is being sold anyway and I'll give you an example when I walk through the passport gates, the digital passport gates of any nation in the world, I literally scan my biometric passport and I walk through those gates. By the time I've exited those gates on my telephone, I have a message telling me, you've just needed such and such space and your telco has a deal with this company and you can use it. Now, are you trying to tell me that me owning my data and my creating my identity is less secure than the institutions that we currently have who are selling my data to those telcos and every other provider. And that would have to include governments because the governments are the ones who issue my, my passport and my digital ID. So there's a lot of people out there pushing rhetoric and hype and creating scaremongering about an individual creating a digital ID that's a self-sovereign ID that you own and that you can allow access services to and, and, and own. And the access to their services can drive efficiency gains in businesses. It can deliver a massive social impact. So I think when we have these conversations, we need to be really honest about the discussions that we're having and compare it to what we currently have and where we're going. Because at the moment, what's happening is those who are insecure, and it comes back to these conversations about transparency and trust, are the ones who are creating the rhetoric and hype that is misinformation about the use of these sorts of technologies to create massive gains um, for society. So I think it's really, really, really important that we have these open and honest discussions about, you know, the potentials um, and eliminate the false information. I'm not in any way, by the way, saying it's perfect because no technology is perfect. Um, right. And we must also advocate that even blockchain and distributed ledger technologies are not innovative. We are. Humans are the innovators. The technology just empowers what we want it to do. Uh, and that will also, you know, when we talk about things like KYC, which is know your customer, and AML or anti-money laundering, you know, the arguments that have been um, fed down our throats and misinformation and hype and rhetoric that we're hearing about the, the ability for cryptocurrencies and, and, and digital currencies to empower you know, criminal money and dark money and black market money. Can I tell you, it's been happening for 2,000 years without blockchain and distributed ledger technology. So please don't say that it is blockchain and distributed ledger technology that's empowering criminal behavior and, and underhand money. It's not. It's people that are doing that. The technology will, in fact, diminish that and reduce access to that um, sort of money. We'll be able to trace it. We know where it's, where it's going and coming from. So that, that's actually a very important point that you raised that basically no technology is kind of completely uh, secure in every, in every sense of the no. word. It's the ideal technology. There's no such thing as that. And like any technology or anything around us, things have their benefits. Things also have their potential 
for, for example, harming them. For example, if you talk about the internet, there's always the, uh, the possibility of children or kind of underage children, for example, being exposed to pornography or kind of the content that should not be actually uh, right. uh, visited by them. Uh, but again, you cannot deny the value or the potential of that specific technology. For example, internet, we can absolutely, I think in this era, we would all agree that it has its benefits, but it can have some potential harms as well. Uh, you mentioned- But even on, even on that, I was going to say, just even on that note, if you're talking about um, things like pornography, what if the register of those who are perpetrators of, of pedophilia, um, those records are indelibly recorded and immutably recorded on a blockchain technology. So every time, if one of those individuals connects to the internet and starts engaging, we would know. We don't know that at the moment. We have a complete entropy of information and, and, and information that empowers us to connect the dots. So, you know, we, we all need to start to think in a bigger picture thinking uh, in terms of, of, of the potentials of, of these sorts of, uh, of technology. So you, you, so we're talking about essentially a technology which essentially we're, we're kind of weighing the potential of it right now and we're talking about that there's still miles to go. There is many improvements in that specific technology that need to come and with time these technologies will be improved and made to kind of better fit our requirements. But certainly this has the potential. You, uh, can you talk to me a little bit more about the where you briefly touched upon GDPR, and I understand that in the healthcare space, there's HIPAA compliance and all of these policies and compliance standards demand that the confidentiality of the users should be retained and maintained. So uh, you mentioned about uh, those digital passports and self-sovereign identities and everything. So I think uh, with that specific uh, uh, aspect. If you keep that in mind, we can talk about the applications of database uh, and, uh, of blockchain in healthcare. We can talk about legal, where absolutely the confidentiality has to be maintained. Talk to me a bit more about the applications of blockchain in healthcare or, uh, let's say, legal in other industries as well. Look, I think I think areas where identity connecting a person to their information. Um, can be applied across a number of key areas. Education is certainly one that's that's key because that involves our lifelong learning and our career and our entire lives of working and earning revenues and, and you know, being able to survive. And along the line, that also includes health services, um, financial services and legal services. But again, what I'm going to say is at the moment, if you think about that, if we think about either a business or an individual and the way that we aggregate and curate um, our access and our entry points and the amount of information that is curated over our lifetimes in any of those areas, we have a complete loss of continuity of that at the moment. It's not a life cycle. It's not a cycle. We almost have shoeboxes of information. So if you think about you know, the number of times a business, for example, might engage with legal services and the legal service owners own that info or they don't own it actually, the individual owns it, but it sits and is stored currently with, you know, the lawyer that you went to. And then you go to another lawyer and you go, I wonder where that information was. Oh, that was with that past lawyer. So there's no continuity of pathway, you know, of information um, in legal services. There's certainly not in health services. Health service is key. So at the moment, an individual might move you know, from where they were born to where they end up in 50 years, they could go 10, 20, 30 different places or they could have health information that's been obtained about them or acquired about them in that 50-year time span, but, it's in, but it could be in a 1,000 different places. So there is no continuity or, or pathway of information. 
if right. we can revert that and an individual owns that information, if you like, in a big digital passport, so their information, almost a personal, a personal distributed ledger, if you like, of critical information about an individual or a business is all curated together in, in one space. What a massive benefit that is. What a massive asset that is for a business and an individual um, to have. Um, you know, in terms of, of an individual, I've got my health services information from the time I was born to, the, to where I am now. So any doctors accessing that information have the full picture of who I am. Um, if I can curate my learning and my skills and my capacities and my credentials and my employment history and all the 21st century and fourth four industrial revolution type skills that I acquire during my life, when I go to be employed, I can open that up and say to my potential employer, here's, my, here's the access to what I've done uh, in 20 years. And I can tell you it's verified because each part of it has been verified right. and immutably recorded. Now, people in terms of GDPR are going to say, oh, yeah, but hang on a tick. You can't remove or you can't delete um, sections of your, your life. You can't remove it. Correct. But you can isolate it. And you can allow it not to be seen by an individual, which we currently can't do. We cannot cur currently do that. But if I owned my identity or if a business owned its identity, it could do that. Now, start to think about things like, okay, we would have transparency in terms of tax payments. So instead of big entities and corporate entities avoiding tax and not being able to ta pay taxes in their countries, um, Individuals and businesses wouldn't be able to do that. It would be a very transparent pathway. The same as, um, you know, legal information. Um, I've done some workshops and some sessions on this exact point alone. When we set up and establish businesses, the cost of legal services currently is so high that it tends to be the area of work that is left out when businesses establish, um, you know, corporate entities and they start to trade and what have you. And I ran some sessions um, with one of the big law firms actually out of Gibraltar and said, we should be able to create digitised code that is recorded on a distributed ledger, white-labelled code, if you like, of standardised business infrastructure, things like, um, you know, shareholders' deeds, how we set up corporate entities, business plans, all of those sorts of things. The white-label digital code that represents the law and the, and the requirements that a business has to abide by when they set up a business. We should be able to create that code. And when I set up a business, I can go to a bank of that code and I can create a smart contract from audited, verified, digitized code of standard practice and automate that process in a business. I've just eliminated massive cost, both at the initial setup stage, but more importantly, in terms of the litigation effect further down the field. And so, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary pathway of knowledge to flow through in a business process and yes you're going to come back and say are law firms um, challenging it are they saying you know we can't do this because the code could be wrong the it's only as good as the input going out is what we're going to get you know the input coming in is only as good as what we're going to get out of it they're absolutely correct 
So we have a massive new industry being created where lawyers should be working with the technologists to create that digitized code that is audited, that is verified, that we have tested and we know that it does do those tasks. Right. So it's not that we can't do it, we're choosing not to do it. Absolutely. And I think that while you were talking about it, I was thinking that we're kind of aiming at multiple things and we can achieve multiple things in the same uh, with the same technology. For example, standardization of processes. We're talking about centralization of information. We're talking about rule and role-based access to information. So there is information right. centralization, but there's also strong policies to control how the users are, or how different uh, agencies or how different organizations are accessing the user's information. So that kind of ecosystem, I think, is absolutely the way to move mm. forward as we go ahead. Mm. Uh, that's and great. I think it's important, and I also think it's important when we are talking about um, things like smart contracts, for example, to talk about what blockchain won't do. Um, so blockchain is not the magical pill to solve everyone's, um, you know, business problems. It is a, is a tool that empowers transparency, um, you know, automation, immutability and respect and all of those sorts of things in decentralized, um, work, workflow and all those sorts of tasks. But what it doesn't do is change human emotion. So if I can talk about the legal aspect, for example, I can create the best smart contract in the world and it can automate the most complex process. So if you want technology to do something, we've got technology to be able to do it. So I can create a, a smart contract that can, you know, automate a very complex process. And we can all agree when we create that smart contract that um, you and I, we both like each other right now. We've both agreed that when this event happens, when A happens or B happens, this is what we're going to do. This is, this is how we're going to respond uh, to that and we're going to automate that in a smart contract. Okay. However, what will not change is when that moment in time happens and, and, and whatever the, um, the event is, A or B, happens, and all of a sudden, you and I don't like each other anymore. And when point A happens and the smart contract automates the outcome, it will not change how I feel about it. So at that moment, if I still feel scorned and I still feel that I don't want that outcome, I've got news for you. The smart contract's going to make it happen. But what it won't change is how I feel and how I respond. So will we still get litigation and will we still get um, you know, challenges about um, smart contracts. Absolutely we will. And we will still get individuals responding as humans with emotion overlaying what's automatically happened with a smart contract. But I think there's a big difference. Now, instead of having two smart lawyers getting into a court case and arguing the definition of a word or some sort of, you know, idiosyncratic type little um, definition, now we're going to have a situation where we can go back and go, you know what, we've got a recording and we've got an, a pathway of information that's got no loss of information. On day one, you, Lisa and Muhammad agreed this was our definition. It's immutable. You can't change that. The only thing we can talk about now is how we're going to resolve this difference of opinion because it's emotion, not fact now and, and so it's a very and I know that's a very simplistic way of looking at it and and not every case is going to be as simplistic as that but there will be many that are and if we talk about the insurance industry that's one so you know if we say that 
a very black and white case. You know, um, if you fall over, you um, hurt yourself, you break your leg um, under these circumstances, then the insurance company will pay out on that. And we, and it's, it's, a, it's a cut and dried, um, you know, automation and we can have a smart contract do that. Yes, the complex right. tasks up here that require much more human functioning we're going to argue about. But I think we need to bring it into perspective of what the benefits would be in terms of cost reduction not being a perfect world and also, more importantly, really openly acknowledge that blockchain is not the magical pill for everything. We are still humans. We will still be involved. We'll still disagree, but it is better than where we sit now. Absolutely. And I think that the whole point about accuracy and transparency, where, we, 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 for example, somebody agrees to somebody about something, that, that kind of record keeping and kind of uh, a way to track all of that communication that happened between two individuals or mm. two parties is essentially the core of any dispute in the legal industry or let's say in the insurance industry, that happens all the time. So I think this automation and this technology can certainly impact that and make things much better improve it to a Correct. certain point and then we can keep on working on it to uh, further improve that. Lisa, what, talk to me a little bit more about how small and medium businesses in particular can leverage blockchain. I mean, I, I, we, we are, we're talking about the technology here, yeah. which essentially is, has a lot of potential, but I also feel that it's kind of still in its early phases of adoption in the market, right? I mean, certainly some departments, some organizations have taken uh, this initiative but a large population, the, the, the types that are not the early adopters are still lagging behind. So talk to me more a bit about how the small and medium business in particular can leverage blockchain and whether they should do that right now or maybe they should wait, let's say, for five years, 10 years down the line and then adopt that. Hmm. Uh, look, I think there's, there's, there's a number of parts to this discussion. I think um, at the moment, you are absolutely correct. I don't call the technology nascent because the technology is well and truly in existence and being used. I think what's a, there's a huge chasm between right. is the chasm is between technology um, being and, and, and the use of the technology and the build of the technology and the information that's actually filtering down to the, the largest part of the market, which is the small to medium enterprises. Now, if you look at if you look at globally, over seventy percent of the world's population work and are sustained by small to medium enterprises. Now, I know the definition of an SME um, differs in various countries, but even if you look at the corporate definition, it's not necessarily a, a, a one person or a two person business. An SME can still have a hundred hundred people and turn over twenty, thirty, forty, fifty million or more in revenue and be a very significant business. What they do have is characteristics that are truly enabling for this technology. They are agile. They um, are able to make decisions quicker. They are keen and, and, and really um, empowered in wanting to reduce their costs and make their businesses more efficient so they can truly start to engage with bigger clients and, and, and build their markets and be competitive, which they're not at the moment. So the big corporates... Uh, and the unicorns in the, in the economy are in many ways driving the prices and, and contracts and supply chains and so forth. So one of the things that um, SMEs have the power to do is they can actually work together also as eco ecosystems. So much of many of the SME market that, that, that I'm working with in particular, and it's where the mind shifting um, initiative actually was first uh, why it was first started was to work with this part of the, of the market and go, how do we 
shift the knowledge that we have about the potentials of this technology and educate the SMEs to be able to build business cases and start to deploy these technologies in a very powerful, strong way. To do that, we can actually work with associations. Most of these small businesses do actually work together. They do work in communities. They work with you know, groupings of, you know, in regional areas, you might find 20, 30,000 small businesses be belong to an association. One of the advantages we have when they do that is that we can take away the things that are not similar. So they might all deliver different goods and services, but I can assure you that SMEs have very similar qualities and very similar sets of challenges that this technology can, can resolve. Now, I'll give you one example. Most SMEs are challenged with cash flow. They're always challenged with long payment terms. They're always challenged with enough cash and revenue coming in as their businesses grow to sustain the growth of their business, pay wages, be compliant, all of those sorts of things. Now, they are some of the basic and amazing uses that we can use um, applications and solutions that are utilising blockchain and distributed ledger technologies. I'll give you an example. There's a company, um, and I didn't actually meet this company in Australia, believe it or not. I actually met them when I was in Berlin. They are a company who have been engaged in invoice financing for many years, 30 years. Company of accountants and lawyers, very traditional firm. They've you know, traditionally engaged with financial institutions, banks and, and um, other financial institutions who've um, purchased or they've purchased the invoices, they've financed the invoices for SMEs, given them cash and then charged them an interest rate for that so that they can actually pay their suppliers and continue to function. The challenge is it's a very high cost because it's a high risk. Um, you know, if you've, got, if you've got a small business and they've purchased a million dollars worth of stock from a supplier, they have to pay for that stock before it's going to be sold. But unless they buy that a million dollars worth of stock in that volume, they won't get the price that is in any way, shape or form competitive with the big corporates who can buy in that volume. They're already disadvantaged. What they very rarely take into account is those higher costs of you know, having to, to, to pay that a million dollars. So they go out and they try and finance or sell those invoices so they can get a cash flow. And it's high cost. It's high risk because it generally goes to one bank or one institution or one supplier. Now think about if that invoice could be purchased and all broken up or fractionalized into a million tokens. Instead of it being a million dollars, it's now a million tokens of $1 each. And instead of one institution owning it, a million people who've invested in those tokens own those a million tokens. I've now just shared that risk by a million people instead of it being just one supplier. That alone, I still have the same facilitated process. I still have the same entity who's purchasing that invoice, but now it's tokenized. It's going out to a, an economy that's been built on distributed ledger technologies, in, in essence, using a community currency, a digital community currency. My small business still sells the invoice. They still get charged an interest rate, if you like, and they still are costs involved. But I've now more than halved the cost to that small business. 
that small business now is actually making a profit generally rather than making a loss. That company exists, Inbox Finance. Um, it's a company based out of Australia. Um, and they've got an extraordinary pathway. Traditional business themselves, they've utilised the technology to transform their own business and now they're giving back that technology and that solution to the SME market for the rest of the world. And it's addressing a real, cho- real challenge of cash flow and a small business being able to purchase in volume and pay their bills and survive and grow and be competitive in a market. Now, you can translate that conversation internationally so there's cross-border communications and cross-border business and trade you know, occurring. For the first time, we can start to allow, for example, community enterprises, social enterprises, to exchange goods and services. Uh, in that space because the costs are lowered. Uh, you know, they're, they're just some of the examples. Um, supply chain is another one. Um, you think about supply chain. Again, one of my, my fantastic colleagues um, helped me with a presentation in a workshop where he um, has he started working with shipping and he, he literally just whiteboarded, forget the technology, what's the challenge we've got to start with? What are the inputs that we've got? The inputs are... That we, between every layer of the supply chain, we've got physical pieces of paper having to be verified that the goods have gotten from point A to point B and they're still the same goods and they've got to go from the next point to the next point to the next point to eventually get to where they need to go. So he basically whiteboarded inputs, what do I want? What's the thing that I want out the other end? I want streamlined. I want it automated. I want to reduce costs. I want it efficient. I want to know that the goods that I received are the genuine goods that started out, um, you know, and where they came from. I also want to know that they're socially and ethically being produced, um, those goods. So what he's done is, is automated each of those processes in terms of paperwork. Um, and all he's done is automate that process using the technology. He started out with shipping and now his process has been able to be white labelled and used for waste management. So he can track track and, and, and um, the supply chain of waste, whether it be recycling or, or bio waste or hazardous waste, whatever that waste may be. It's just the process. Take away the actual product, if you like, and use the process. And he used SMEs to do that. He went into associations and collaborative groups and said, look, you're all struggling with this same challenge. The thing that keeps you awake at night and the thing that's holding you back to being competitive, how about as a group we work with it and we use the group as our beta test. And then once we've beta tested it in a safe environment with the group, we roll it out. And that's how they've worked. And they've been able to make decisions and they've been able to be reactive and resilient and agile in feedback and all of those sorts of things to truly advance and deploy this technology. Um, and, and they aren't pie-in-the-sky solutions. They're working now. They're actually operating now. But I've got to say, you don't see those being discussed at the million and one events that are around the world because they're nothing to do with the price of Bitcoin and the exchanges and the trading of currencies. It's about business efficiencies and how do we use the technology to empower it. You, you actually have just, I mean, while you were speaking, I was just kind of letting you speak because there's so much of ideas that you've just shared in the last five to ten minutes that are completely different uh, from uh, the regular discussions that happen all the time. I mean, whenever somebody is talking about blockchain, they just somehow limit that discussion to 
uh, cryptocurrency or bitcoins, but that's not the case. That's not the point. No. What you no, highlighted this what you highlighted in this meeting was I mean I literally took notes of that because you talked about basically a, a white labeled process essentially so to speak where we can map it whether that's in supply chain in financial services in in other even waste management who who would have managed imagined that blockchain could be actually of use in the waste management industry in that scenario as well so. What think about think about. I'm going to give us another example. I mean, I could go on and on. There's so many examples. I'm let's talk you. about let's talk about IP, and it doesn't intellectual property, and let's not just define it as music or um, you know documentation. It could be um, IP of ideas. It could be educational content. It's anything, any know-how and content that I that I produce. Now, I can tell you in my career, I've given away more IP than I care to imagine. I should be a billionaire and I'm not because I've given most of it away. And one of the reasons you do is you know that in terms of, of the digital space that we work in, that once my information goes out there, there is always a way for somebody to take it. But imagine if it wasn't that way. Imagine if the minute that I created intellectual property, whether it be a piece of music, whether it be a piece of art, whether it be a designer good, whether it be a, a, a sculpture, whether it be, um, you know, just a, a piece of educational information, a, a, a document, a, a template, anything. When I upload that and I record that information on a distributed ledger technology based application, it's there. I own it. It's tagged to me. I own it. Gucci owns their payments. Prada owns their bags. Um, a certain person owns their music. A certain person owns their painting and their art. Now, every single time that piece of information is accessed, it's tagged to me. I don't care who uses it. Anybody can use it. But I will get the credit for it. I will get remunerated for it and I've just shifted a massive economy away from those who um, are not receiving that currently. So musicians won't be impoverished. People who, are, who have art, you know, won't have falsified artworks, etc. But we can actually shift revenue. It's a sharing economy. Now, instead of my template, never being me never being paid for it and 50,000 people down the track taking credit for it and using my IP and my knowledge I might only get a fraction of a cent for that but I'm not getting anything for it now and it's the same as a musician I, I, this is this is a really good tangible example most places around the world to to play music in the public have to pay a license to play music and that license fee goes to a centralized authority who revenue generate and, and gouge money from businesses for playing music in public spaces. Does that license fee ever go back to the individual artist who owns that music? And the answer is no. It goes into a pocket or a big funnel of, of, of funds that gets used for bureaucratic bastardry to empower um, organizations not one of the individuals who owns that music actually gets that money even though a business has paid a license to say you you can't play that music because it's owned by someone else well the owners aren't getting paid for it it's a license fee that goes to a centralized authority with if that ip is recorded on a blockchain on a distributed ledger 
that artist might get a fraction of a cent every time his bar of music is played, but he will get that fraction of a cent. We've just shared that economy. We've just shared that revenue around and we've now got people being paid for the work that they have created. And it doesn't matter what the IP is. That's the empowerment that we have with this technology that, that we is do not have beautiful. Now. I mean, I mean you, you just highlighted the single biggest problem of intellectual property-based uh, cases. I mean, we, we talk about that, all right, this was my intellectual property. No, this was uh, somebody else's. And that's the whole conflict, right? And with blockchain, Correct. it's right there. Just open the distributed ledger records and you can exactly see. And then you can even kind of build a whole ecosystem like, like you pointed out that basically the credit or kind of the money for that specific IP belongs to that specific owner, that content mm. creator or that intellectual mm. property owner who has actually put that content right there in the first mm. place. So that's actually beautiful. Uh, you talk, I mean, you also spoke about that uh, risk sharing in that financial, uh, financial industry when you were talking about kind of maintaining all those uh, records of uh, goods and services being exchanged and kind of distributing that risk, that application itself I mean, for the small and medium businesses, that's something like a gold idea that they can leverage. They can actually cash on it in the times to come to basically improve their profits and cut down the costs and improve the, uh, kind of build on the efficiency from there. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa.